This podcast is part of the BombPod Media Network. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And I am your host, Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome, welcome, welcome from wherever you are, whenever you're listening. I am so glad to be back here with you guys today. There was a bit of a delay in putting this up, making this podcast, and I am sorry for that. But here I am. And here we go with episode 11, which is also the final episode of the Howard Dully Life Story series. Before we get started, I would like to give a few iTunes shoutouts to Peaches1336, C. Jemina, MarlaHouse.com, AngryBirdMama123, Gone Cold Podcast. This is Vincent. And if you haven't listened to this podcast, it's true crime. It's amazing. Please go have a listen. Now, Alexander13 Dayton. Podcaster 121. Thank you very much, guys. And I have another Patreon supporter, and this is Mikkel Jensen. So thank you very much. It means so much to me. As you all know, the iTunes reviews help get this podcast out here, out there, for people to find. And the Patreon, of course, helps me to cover my costs and work towards better sound and better production. So thank you everybody. And of course, to everybody who listens, you all mean so much to me. So thanks. I last left off with Howard and Barbara getting married and raising two boys. Howard began work as a bus driver for IBM and he worked there for a few years, but the hours were grueling and affecting his health. Remember, he already had a heart attack, so he had to be really careful with the type of work that he did. Shortly after, he began work for another company, and they were just as uh, grueling and stressful as IBM. So then he found a job with a company called Durham, which supplied school buses for children with special needs. Howard preferred to drive the children with special needs. He understood them because he had gone to school at Costa Linda with children who had various different types of disabilities. He knew how to relate to them. He grew attached to them. He got to know them. Howard said of the time, quote, My life leveled out. I was working. My health was better. My head was clearer. And I began to see my life differently. I began to think about my life and about what happened to me in a new way. Not so emotional. More analytical. He found that he was able to help people who were struggling. Howard had come so far that he could empathize with people and offer comfort and advice. This is so remarkable after all that he went through. Ugliness had not entered his heart. At this time, Barbara's sister Linda was in jail struggling with a drug addiction. Howard knew what it felt like to be locked up. So he went to visit her every Sunday for two months. He spent the time with her, talked about quitting drugs, getting clean, and to stop throwing her life away. This is what Howard said of this time, quote, I visited her every Sunday without Barbara ever knowing for about two months. Something I said must have sunk in. 
She got out of jail and went to live with some friends. She quit using drugs. She went to Bethany College in Scotts Valley and got a degree. She became a drug counselor and she's still doing that work today. That's amazing. Howard was really starting to reflect upon his life. He started researching the internet and read everything he could about lobotomy. He stumbled upon a book by Elliot S. Valenstein called Great and Desperate Cures. In there, Howard found an entry about himself. This is what he said, quote, On page 274, there was something about me. Valenstein told a story about Freeman going to the Langley Porter Clinic in San Francisco to make a presentation about lobotomy in young adults and bringing with him three young people, including a 12-year-old boy who had been given a transorbital lobotomy. It was January 1961. That 12-year-old boy was me. Seeing everything in print for Howard made it real. He had begun to do even more research. He contacted psychiatric hospitals and institutions. Nobody answered. Nobody was interested. I'm sure that they didn't want to open the door to criticism. God forbid. He came upon a website called psychosurgery.com, run by a woman by the name of Christine Johnson. It was full of information, a bit of a jackpot. Christine told Howard that she heard about a radio producer who was preparing a show on Walter Freeman. She offered to give them his information, and Howard agreed to that. In the fall of 2003, he was contacted by Pia Koshar. She was working on a project with Dave Isay. They worked for NPR and had a production company called Sound Portraits. Dave and Pia not only wanted to interview Howard, they were going to help him find the truth of what happened to him. Get some honest answers. Maybe help him understand how all of this happened to him. Pia and Dave had contacted George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Walter Freeman had donated all of his professional papers and discovered that the archives were open to anyone who had been a patient of Freeman's. Those archives opened the door into a mind of a madman whose writings told the story of many, many horrors to many, many people. We went into a room and there was a stretcher there. He came in with something of a flourish and he had his valise. And the first person was brought in and strapped down, given an electroshock. He had an instrument. To me, it looked like a nail, a great big nail. It was silver. It looked like a screwdriver, only a sharp point. It was an ice pick. An ice pick. They call it ice pick, but of course it was a surgical instrument. And then he held the ice pick parallel to the nose. Slip it under the eyelid. And he tapped it above the eyeball. Through the orbit of the eye. So there'd be a little crunch. And then he shoved it up into the forward part of the brain. And then he did the other side. He, he took the probes, he put his hands on each one, and then he twirled them kind of in an egg-beater fashion for a little while in the frontal part of the brain. And then he would take a picture of it. Then he just took hold of each probe and pulled it uh, with a big yank, and that was that. It took between seven and eight minutes. It was very quick. The patient went out, the next patient was ready to come in and had his procedure done, and then the next patient came in. There was total silence among those of us who were watching. It was riveting. Howard began interviewing some of the women and family members 
who had been lobotomized by Freeman. The first person he interviewed was Anne Krusback, a woman who had been lobotomized by Freeman at Doctors General Hospital a week after Howard had been. This is what Howard wrote of the visit, quote, To my surprise and disappointment, her feelings about Freeman and her lobotomy were all completely positive. This round, silver-haired woman thought he was a great man, and the operations were a wonderful thing. End of quote. Frankly, I'm not surprised by this. Freeman was such a manipulative, charming sociopath, he could convince so many people to make a deal with the devil, and that it was the best thing that they ever did. The scary thing is that sometimes the lobotomy had a positive effect, despite the damage it did. Only that one success, if you want to call it that, drove Freeman even harder and caused so much pain and suffering to hundreds more. It was a different story for the second interview with Carol Noel. Her mother, Anne Ruth, was lobotomized in 1950 when Carol was a little girl. I'm going to have Howard tell this part to you. Hello. Hi. I'm Howard Dully. Good to see you. It's good to see you. I fly to Atlanta, Georgia to meet Carol Noel. Carol tells me her mother suffered from severe headaches. In 1950, she was referred to Walter Freeman, who prescribed a transorbital lobotomy. That's when the fun began. The procedure cured Carol's mom of her headaches, but left her with the mind of a child. Did she worry about stuff? Nope. <laughs> didn't worry. Just as Freeman promised, she didn't worry. She had no concept of social graces. If someone was having a gathering at their home, she had no problem with going into their house and taking a seat, too. Not a problem. Oh, there you go. We have the Anna Ruth picture from back there. That's her. Is she pretty? She was so smart. She was so smart. But she had no place to put it. The only outlet she had was beating every pinball machine in town and knowing how many pennies were in the jar at the carnival. You know. She was the greatest playmate we ever had and the best friend, and we loved her to death. But I never remember calling her mama or mommy or anything. I never even thought of my mother as my daughter's grandmother, and I never even took my daughter to see her, not one time. So she never even got to have that. So needless to say, to ask you if you think about this a lot would be an understatement. I make sure I never forget. Do you ever wonder how come it is is that we're at the age we are and we, and we can't seem to just say, okay, that was then, this is now. Why are, we even, why, why are you bothering? It's not okay. Yeah. It's not finished. On the day of Anne Krusback's lobotomy, Carol lost herself and her mother. Lobotomy always destroyed more than the life of the person who received it. It damaged everyone who loved them. Once again, I'm going to have Howard tell the story of Rebecca Welch and her mother, Anita McGee. I don't know who could have perceived this procedure as a miracle cure. The only thing I see that came out of it was the hurt and pain for a lot of people. Rebecca Welch's mother, Anita, was lobotomized by Dr. Walter Freeman for postpartum depression in 1953. You're all dressed up today. <laughs> After spending most of her life in mental institutions, today Anita McGee lives in a nursing home in Birmingham, Alabama. Rebecca visits her every week. 
She believes Walter Freeman's lobotomy destroyed her mother's life. I personally think that something in Dr. Freeman wanted to be able to conquer people and take away who they were. What was that song, Mom? Huh? Will you sing that one today? You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. She's there, but she's not there. Today, Rebecca brings along her husband, David. They've been married 19 years, but he's never been here before. Never laid eyes on his mother-in-law. Basically, it's been so painful, I've tried to stay very far away from it for a long time. Kind of like if you leave it alone, it'll go away. But it never goes away. So what has changed your mind about hiding from it now? You? Do you know how many people you're championing? Do you know how many people that can't do what you're doing and you're doing it for them? It does wonders to know that other people have the same pain. The loss. There's a loss that you can't ever get made up. Howard was quickly finding out that he wasn't alone in all this suffering. Through these interviews, he was actually speaking face-to-face to the people who had been damaged, had their lives ruined. Sometimes it's through these terrible events that people can come together and heal. Or we never want to know that another human being has suffered, but sometimes you feel so alone in it. And when you can actually speak to someone who's gone through it, you feel like you can do it if they can do it. And Howard was championing for so many people, but they were also helping him to heal. Howard was now well into the journey that was helping him find his own personal truth. But he was also being a voice for the people that didn't have one. The next day they went to George Washington University to the archives. There was a folder waiting for him on the table. All answers were in there. His life on paper. All that devastation and abuse. All that torture and suffering. All the crimes committed against him were words in a folder. Evidence. Proof. As you can imagine, Howard was nervous and scared. Howard was the first patient of Freeman's to have ever gone forward to see his case history. First, he saw the pictures of himself as a 12-year-old boy before, during, and after surgery, as was Freeman's obsession. He took thousands of pictures of his patients over the years. The worst were the ones he took during and after surgery. A few people died because of his obsession or so profoundly injured that they were permanently and irreversibly brain damaged. They were by the lobotomy anyway, but this, this was so much worse. If he was doing a lobotomy by himself, which he was known to do, he would insert the leukotomes into the patient's eyes, into their brains, and walk away to take pictures. These tools were very heavy, and sometimes these surgical ice picks would slip further into the brain because of their weight and tear through the brain tissue and impale the brain, puncturing major vessels or doing so much damage that the patient would die or be severely disabled. Next, he was given documents to read, his documents, his story. I think it's really important that we hear this from Howard with his voice, how he felt at the time. Here we go. 
Mrs. Dully called up to say that Howard has been unbelievably defiant with a savage look on his face, and at times she is almost afraid. He doesn't react either to love or to punishment. He objects to going to bed, but then sleeps well. He does a good deal of daydreaming, and when asked about it, he says, I don't know. He turns the room's lights on when there's broad sunlight outside. And he hates to wash. <laughs> Okay. After a couple weeks of building her case, she brought me to meet Dr. Freeman. Uh, October 26, 1960. Howard is rather tall, slender, somewhat withdrawn type of individual. The first interview today was largely in a matter of getting acquainted. He told about his paper route, which brings him some $20 each month, and he's saving up to get a record player. Howard is rather evasive about talking about things that go on in the home. November 30th, my birthday. Mrs. Dully came in for a talk about Howard. Things have gotten much worse, and she can barely endure it. I explained to Mrs. Dully that the family should consider the possibility of changing Howard's personality by means of transorbital lobotomy. Mrs. Dully said it was up to her husband that I would have to talk with him and make it stick. December 3, 1960, Mr. and Mrs. Dully have apparently decided to have Howard operated on. I suggested them not tell Howard anything about it. December 17, 1960. I performed transorbital lobotomy. This is the physician's service report. Transorbital lobotomy, a sharp instrument, was thrust through the orbital roof and moved so as to sever brain pathways in the frontal lobes. $200 for surgery, so the whole thing was 200 bucks. Well, that's pretty cheap. How oh, fantastic. January 4th, 1961. I told Howard what I had done to him today, and he took it without a quiver. He sits quietly, grinning most of the time and offering nothing. And I was supposed to fight all this, huh? No way. Twelve-year-olds couldn't stand against all that. Just wasn't fair. I don't know about you guys, but I'm finding it really difficult listening to this. Hearing the emotion, hearing the pain. But it, it's nothing compared to what he went through. As Howard kept reading, he noticed a documentation error. Actually, it was documentation fraud. He was reading notes for November 30th, December 1st, and December 3rd. And then there was an entry dated November 7th, that had been slipped in. It was this next entry that is one of the most sick and vindictive things I've read. It shows the demented mind of Lou. It takes a twisted mind to come up with such a lie. If this was not testimony to her insanity, I don't know what is. She should have been locked up for this, and Freeman stripped of his medical license and charged. This is the entry. Quote, I learned from Mrs. Dully, when Mr. Dully was out, that Howard is suspected of beating his baby brother nearly to death. Since the infant was found in his crib with his skull fractured, and his chest caved in, and was barely saved from death. Mrs. Dully says she heard this from Mrs. Heaton, who claimed that Mr. Dully himself had told her of it at the time of his wife's death. He said Howard hated the baby, which he identified with the death of his mother. Since Howard was only five years old at the time, it was rather likely. 
I feel physically ill when I read this. To say that Howard attacked his baby brother and almost killed him. And then to describe in detail the things he did, Howard would have been five years old at the time. Also, the baby stayed in the hospital the whole time. Here was Howard's response to this. Quote, What? Me? Beat my baby brother Bruce? It was a lie. A terrible, ugly lie. Why was the entry dated wrong? Why had Lou told Freeman the story when my father was out? Why hadn't Freeman asked my father about it when he came back? He would have told him it wasn't true. Who was Mrs. Heaton? When has she told Lou this story? How could my father have told Mrs. Heaton the story at the time of, my, of his wife's death, since she died when Bruce was only 12 days old? And why? The biggest question of all, why had Lou waited so long to tell Freeman? For almost two months, she had been trying to convince him that I was, a, that I was dangerous and crazy. If she believed I had beaten my infant brother nearly to death, why in the world would she have waited this long to tell it? Was she telling it now as a final nail in my coffin to make sure Freeman was enough against me to justify a lobotomy? Or had Freeman gone back and added this information after the lobotomy? Was he trying to protect himself by putting down evidence to prove I was a lunatic? Was that why the date was wrong? My head ached. I put the pages down. I got choked up. I couldn't go on reading. Can you imagine how devastated he was reading this? Can you imagine his shock, his hurt, even the image of his little brother being brutalized in that way? His baby brother was profoundly brain damaged at birth. To put even the tiniest little doubt into his mind, only to realize the scheming from Lou and Freeman, the fraudulent documents, the slander, all of this to lobotomize a 12-year-old boy as you heard at the end of the last clip, Howard said, how is a 12-year-old boy supposed to stand up to something like this? Reading these horrible documents give proof of these lies, proof of the crimes, proof that Lou and Freeman were true sociopaths conspiring against Howard for reasons only Lou knew. Once Howard had some time to collect himself after reading these horrible documents, he was asked if he wanted to see the leukotomes that Freeman used for transorbital lobotomies. The archivist brought out the tools, including the original Uline Ice Company ice pick that Freeman used on his first patients. There were different variations on the tool as Freeman perfected his technique. And this is what Howard had to say. Quote, They were all made of heavy steel. They were about eight inches long. They had thick handles and sharp blades. I held one in my hand. It was horrible to think a medical doctor would really stick this in a person's brain and slide it around. But it didn't upset me to hold it. I felt its power, but I was not afraid of its power. I was no longer afraid of Freeman or what had happened to me. I had seen what they did to me and why it no longer had power over me. The next day they interviewed Dr. J. Lawrence Poole. He had been a colleague of Freeman's in the early part of his career. Here is the interview. My name is Dr. J. Lawrence Poole. I'm now 97 years old. I dedicated my life to brain surgery. 
I did not approve of Dr. Freeman's ice pick method, no. I said, Walter, I don't approve of this procedure. He knew that. Dr. Freeman did some in his office and would send the patient home by taxi cab. Just as you go to a dentist and get a filling and send him home by taxi. And I tell you, it gave me a sense of horror. How would you like to step into a psychiatrist's office and have him take out a sterilized ice pick and shove it into the brain over your eyeball? Would you like the idea? No. Howard and Barbara returned back home after the interviews and the trip to the archives. P. and Dave asked Howard if he was willing to interview his father. He didn't want to. He was afraid to. He spent months thinking about it, but he finally agreed to see if his father would be willing to be interviewed. As you can imagine, Howard was an abused child. He had lived a very hard life. His father was a strict disciplinarian and agreed to his lobotomy and his institutionalization. That kind of hurt and fear just doesn't go away because you've become an adult or you were six foot seven. The fear would still exist. That threat still exists. It's real. It took a lot of courage for Howard to reach out to risk further condemnation. Howard reached out to his father by letter that Barbara helped him write. Here's Howard reading the letter to his father. Dear Dad, I am writing you this letter because I've gotten my records on the operation I had as a boy and I have some questions to ask. I have not asked them before this out of love for you and I'm afraid that asking will change your love for me. The operation has haunted me all my life. Now that I'm 56 years old, I would like to sit down with you and I couldn't believe it. My dad agreed to talk. So Howard went ahead and sent all the documents he gathered from the university to his father so that he wouldn't feel blindsided. He didn't really think that his father would agree. He didn't like to talk about uncomfortable things, especially from the past. But like you found out, to his surprise, he did. Howard had waited 40 years to have this meeting. So they decided to do the interview at Pacifico Hotel. He picked up his dad and drove him there. He was nervous and the drive was uncomfortable. Here is that interview. I'm here with my dad. I have waited for over 40 years for this moment. Thank you for being here with with. I tell you anything that needs to be answered. Okay, so we're here to talk about my uh, transorbital lobotomy. So how did you find Dr. Freeman? I didn't. She did. She took you. I don't. I think she tried some other doctors that said, "Uh-uh, there's nothing wrong here. Yeah, you, 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 he's a normal boy." It was the stepmother problem. My question would be naturally, why would you let it happen to me if that was the case? I got manipulated, pure and simple. I was sold a bill of goods. She sold me, and Freeman sold me, and I didn't like it. Did you ever meet Dr. Freeman, and uh, what was he like? I only met him. I think the one time. She described how accurate it was and that he had practiced the cutting on a, literally a carload of grapefruit, getting the right move and the right turn. That's what he told me. <laughs> Have you ever seen a picture of the operation? No. Would you mind if I showed you one? Or? I show my dad the photograph of me at 12 years old with the ice picks in my eyes. Oh. The thing I'm intrigued by is how you look so calm. 
Is there anything in this that you regret at all? <sighs> see, that's that's negative, and I don't dwell on negative ideas. Now, you see, see what, and and what am I talking about? Positive. I always try to be positive. I don't make it always. Okay, but this was, you know, this is really a. <clears throat> excuse me. Has affected my uh, my whole life. Uh, nobody is perfect. Could I, I do it over again? Would I have? Oh, hindsight's beautiful. Fifty years later, I can say this was a mistake. Yeah. Well, so was World War One a mistake. So, uh, why do you think it's been so hard for us to talk about this? In your uh, estimation. Largely because you never asked about it. You never asked about it. It was an unpleasant part of my life, and I. I don't particularly want to delve into it. It's Although kind of he refuses to take any responsibility, just sitting here with my dad and getting to ask him questions about my lobotomy is the happiest moment of my life. Well, I want to thank you for uh, for doing this with me. I really do. I, I never thought that this would ever happen. Well, you see, miracles occur. Actually, what I wanted to do was tell you that I, I love you very well, much. <laughs> whatever made you think I didn't know that? You shaped up pretty good. And I feel very happy about it. That's where I'm wanting it. Every time I hear that interview, it uh, it breaks me up inside a little bit because Howard was reaching out to his dad, and uh, he he wouldn't take any responsibility. He didn't offer him any comfort. He didn't apologize. He was cold. He was accusatory. I can't imagine how that felt. But Howard, as you can hear, was very forgiving. And he was just happy to be talking to his dad. I just wish for him that Rodney had learned and had given Howard so much more than what he did. Okay, life returned back to normal, as normal as it could for Howard and Barbara. They bought themselves a nice little house, and the broadcast was in production. But it was a long wait. It was scheduled for Wednesday, November 14th, 2005, but the premiere was scheduled for Monday the 12th. It was to be held at the infamous Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. The place was packed. There were reporters from CNN and the New York Times. Everyone wanted to talk to Howard or seemed to be talking about him. Howard Barbara and their son Rodney sat in the front row. Other people from the production were there as well. And this was a quote from Howard about how he felt. I was nervous. I felt like I was bearing my soul. Everything about me was going to be out there for the whole world to see and hear. What would it be like? I had kept these things secret for most of the people I knew for almost my whole life. End of quote. I can't even imagine how difficult this was. He was bearing his soul to the world. He shouldn't have anything to fear. Everyone in the room would surely be empathetic and admire him for his courageousness. Unfortunately, we all know about the stigma that still exists in this world towards mental health, mental illness. So he was justified in feeling that way. Still pretty bad now. The 22-minute documentary had a profound effect on the audience. 
They were speechless for quite a few moments after until they erupted into applause. There was only one jackass in the audience and they suggested that the documentary was dishonest because a person who was lobotomized could not be smart enough to have written his own words, his own lines, and couldn't be articulate. A person with a lobotomy couldn't be creative or artistic. They couldn't have been more wrong. Howard's words were his. Howard received many wonderful letters, sharing with him how touched they were by the story. Finally, he was getting all kinds of words that he deserved, like brave and courageous. Howard was approached shortly after the broadcast about writing a book. And he did write a book, his memoir, My Lobotomy. Howard's father died in the winter of 2008. He had been sick for over a year. Howard and Barbara had spent a lot of time at his dad's house, taking him to doctor's appointments, cleaning and cooking for him. And on one more occasion, taking him to the ER room. So, to the end, Howard loved his dad and did his best to love and support him, even though he never got the apology that he was owed. Even after his dad's passing, Howard's life continued to be busy and exciting. He did newspaper, magazine, radio, and TV interviews. He was doing guest speaking and continued to work hard as a bus driving instructor. Unfortunately, Barbara became ill and had a series of small strokes, but with time she recovered. In 2007, Howard made history. He was the first patient ever to undergo a special type of high-resolution MRI. It could show exactly what Freeman and the lobotomy had done to him. Howard was, of course, warily excited to find out what exactly happened to him. The scientists were Dr. Bob Doherty and Dr. Glenn Fox. They were doing early studies of neuroplasticity. They tried to recreate what damage lobotomy would do with theory, but theory was all it was. The doctors had never been able to do an MRI on a patient that had been lobotomized who could be properly interviewed, as most people were either in such a terrible brain damaged state or had passed. As much as Howard wanted to know what happened to him, he was also afraid that they might find something wrong, like a brain tumor. What was revealed was that Howard was a medical marvel, a miracle. They were able to visualize the damaged areas. They could see where Freeman had brutalized Howard's young brain. The doctors wondered if Howard, in fact, had a lobotomy before doing the MRI because he seemed so normal. They considered the notion that they wouldn't find any signs of lobotomy. They were shocked when they first saw the MRI images. They saw pictures of a badly damaged brain. This is the question that Howard asked the doctors. Quote, I asked them later if they had seen the MRI to look at, what kind of patient would they have imagined? What would that patient be like? The doctor said, he would require permanent institutionalization, Glenn said. He would not be able to care for himself. He would not be able to function in the world at all. If Freeman had performed the same lobotomy on me as an adult, they said, I would have been a vegetable. That's how badly damaged my brain was. I wouldn't have been able to survive outside the institution. I would have stayed at Agnew's forever. But my brain, when Freeman got to it, was young. It was still growing. And after the surgery, it adapted to the lobotomy and found ways to compensate for it. 
the parts of my brain that Freeman hadn't damaged grew stronger. This is the miracle of neuroplasticity. This is the miracle of Howard Dulley. I'm going to end this episode now with Howard's words. I'll never know what I lost in those 10 minutes with Dr. Freeman as I speak. By some miracle, it didn't turn me into a zombie, crush my spirit or kill me, but it did affect me deeply. Walter Freeman's operation was supposed to relieve suffering. In my case, it did just the opposite. Ever since my lobotomy, I felt like a freak, ashamed. But sitting in this room with Rebecca Welch and her mom, I know that my suffering is over. I know my lobotomy didn't touch my soul. For the first time, I feel no shame. I am, at last, at peace. And that is the story of Howard Dulley. Only, it's not quite over yet. I was and have been fortunate enough to be in contact with him. We've got to know each other a little bit. And he's an amazing, amazing man. And he allowed me to interview him. So next episode will be the interview between me and Howard. So you've got to come back in two weeks and listen to the interview and find out how he's doing. I think you're going to, in fact, I know you're going to really enjoy it. As you know, I usually end with a suture room. But this time I really felt that I didn't want to take away from Howard's story. I thought I would end it as it as it was. So I hope you guys are okay with that. But before I go, I do want to do a promotion for two of my favorite podcasts. So the first amazing man you're going to hear from is Joel from This Week in True Crime. Take it away, Joel. Hi, I'm Joel Micah Harris, the host of This Week in True Crime History. Join me as I dig into the recent and not-so-recent past to uncover true crime stories on the week of their anniversary. You can find This Week in True Crime History on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. For more information, visit us at thisweekintruecrime.com. This next promo is from the true crime historian himself. Here we go. True Crime Historian presents classic tales of the scandals, scoundrels, and scourges of the past. Told from official documents, the writings of the pioneers of true crime, and newspaper accounts in the golden age of yellow journalism. Whether it's a love triangle turned bad, a heist gone awry, or a fall from grace, they all have one thing in common. Yeah, that's not going to end well. I'm true crime historian Richard O. Jones, and I give you new stories every Thursday and Sunday from the Wondery Network at www.truecrimehistorian.com or your favorite podcast player. Thank you, Richard. Please go check these guys out. Excellent, excellent podcasts. Before I end today, I want to ask you, once again, if you wouldn't mind going to iTunes and leaving me a review. It really helps to get the show 
out there. It helps the ratings. It helps it move up so more and more people know that stat exists. So please wander on over there and leave me a review. Thank you. So this is the end of today's show. Stat. Shocking traumas and treatments. And never forget that sometimes it's the cure that kills you. Ha 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 ha.